Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Esti Dinor. Who is uh, Sam Bankman-Fried? He is the 30-year-old founder of FTX and the former chief executive of that same company. Once a golden boy of the crypto industry, he was a major donor to the Democratic Party and known for his commitment to effective altruism. That, at least, is how the New York Times defines him. Our guest today, I think, will um, argue with that, and we'll be talking with him about what's going on in the crypto industry, and specifically FTX, and we'll also go back to the SNL crisis of the 80s. My guest is William Black. He's author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the SNL Industry. He was the deputy staff director of the National Commission that investigated the cause of the savings and loan debacle, and he is with us today. Thank you, Bill, for joining us today. What do you think about this description by the New York Times? So it's uh, both misleading and it pulls all the punches. Uh, It's misleading in that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is a classic Um, What I am is a white-collar criminologist, uh, primarily, and a former financial regulator, as you say. So these are the people who control a seemingly legitimate entity and use it as camouflage, a weapon, and a shield. And that's what he really was. There was no there there, right? His enterprise was a fraud left, right, center from the beginning. And he didn't give overwhelmingly to Democrats. Uh, he personally gave to Democrats, but he made sure that his top associates gave uh, largely to Republicans. In other words, they wanted to buy politicians of both parties. And to just bring your thing in in the savings and loan debacle, my saying then as a regulator was, the highest return on assets is always a political contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so let's get back to the beginning. Maybe we have among our listeners people who never heard of Sam Bankman-Fried and of FTX. What is FTX? Who is the man? Why are we talking about them? <laughs> uh, so he's uh, an example of this modern... Uh, control fraud and predator, as we would say, who isn't very good at his craft of being a fraudster, right? So this is like Elizabeth Holmes, uh, right? Uh, Who never created 
uh, a blood testing device at Theranos that worked, uh, but had her company was able to attract uh, $7 billion in investor funds and had most of uh, the Hoover Institution's top people uh, as active sponsors uh, and defenders of her fraud scheme. Or Bernie Madoff, who never made a, a single investment with his fund, right? It was entirely a Ponzi scheme uh, that would have fallen apart if anyone had looked. So Sam Bankman-Fried is in that long line of people that never produced anything, all right, Not, uh, that had any economic value. And he infamously uh, went on an interview with Bloomberg reporters, so finance reporters, and said, well, basically this FTX you asked about and another company he owned, Alameda, they're a black box, he said. And that they have nothing of intrinsic value, but people treat it as if it has some value. And so it has some value. And then he proceeded to describe a Ponzi scheme, whereupon the Bloomberg reporters start laughing. And one of them says, you know, I think of myself as a cynical guy, but man, you are way more cynical than ever I thought. But none of them got off the phone and said, I got to write a column telling people to get their money out of Alameda and FTX, or hey, I've got to call the Securities and Exchange Commission and warn them that there's this scheme or make a referral to the FBI and the Department of Justice. They just thought it was kind of a neat story. And of course, within weeks, uh, the whole thing blew up uh, in a massive bankruptcy because it was a black box that had nothing of value. So um, yeah, so when you um, when you described that interview with the Bloomberg reporters, I, I was wondering if they wrote about it. Why why would they not write about it? Why it, it, like is is the whole finance sector in one big conspiracy to? Uh, rip people off or what? How how does it work? I'm I'm very far from that world. I really don't know how it works. Yeah, you don't have to bribe finance reporters. <laughs> you don't need a conspiracy. It's good news. Uh, so they didn't suppress it. It, it was a, a um, in fact, I think it was a live uh, virtual cast. Oh, so people watching it, and some of them eventually wrote uh, about it. But none of them, although they knew he was describing a Ponzi scheme, that was the word they used. You, the, the Bloomberg reporter said, you're describing a Ponzi scheme. But none of them were horrified. They were more like, <laughs> you know, cool uh, type of, of thing. And uh, that's because in finance, what they're looking for is clicks. You know, this is uh, social media. Um, this is a Bloomberg show that most promotes cryptocurrencies. So they just want clickbait. Huh. Okay. So um, who are the people that Bankman Freed um, 
got and and who in generally in general are the people that get taken that get got by um, these schemes how how does it work so it works like uh, a many a Ponzi scheme if you can get people to say wow yesterday there were four people buying it today there are 16 tomorrow there's 32 there's 64 the day after and soon we're in the thousands well what will happen to the value of that token it will go up and whoever gets in first for no skills no product of value if he or she and except that this is highly gendered this is overwhelmingly he if they hold it uh, and they're in early they will in fact be millionaires if the token takes off and right? if they and if they get out on time is that part of it yes if they get out on time exactly and of course in this one a number of them did not so to go back to your question who's Sam Bankman Freed Sam Bankman Freed is the cliche of his generation right the guy that wanted to be incredibly wealthy within a few years had no skills uh, was supremely arrogant that everybody in finance was a moron he was a genius uh, his parents are both uh, highly distinguished Stanford Law School profs at the absolute peak of the Academy so think of uh, Madison where you are you know, uh, but on steroids uh, next to Silicon Valley mm -hmm. uh, Sam Bankman's Freed's dad was uh, highly valued within the sort of libertarian community uh, that dominates uh, crypto and uh, tech world uh, out there uh, I, we live my wife and I lived out there uh, for 20 years by the way so we know this you know what you're very, talking about <laughs> very very well uh, in all of this and so here's what they thought here's what the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world think hey I've got this black box and people are giving me billions of dollars what if I took the money and didn't actually just run an exchange what if I shipped the money to another company I owned, which is called Alameda. And then I had Alameda invest. Well, banks have to pay in interest on their deposits, right? That's a significant expense. I'm an exchange. I don't have to pay any interest. Hmm. Banks have all the brick and mortar costs, the buildings and stuff. I got none of that. So, and I think people in finance and banking are morons so I've got all these advantages over them and it's easy to make money in banking you don't have to really know anything and so I'll just invest and we'll make a fortune but none of those things are true mm-hmm so um, some of these rich people who um invested in um, FTX and or Alameda um, are themselves in some legal trouble now. Why is that? What, um, 
what put them on the wrong side for having invested in some sham so they were promoters as well as investors that's what primarily got them in trouble for example their audit firm their audit firm is a third tier audit firm that no significant financial entity would ever use because it doesn't have any of the requisite skills and if you uh, so my primary appointments in economics in economics that the prediction would be well no one would rely on that audit right but in fact this third tier audit firm was most noted for being having its primary site on the metaverse like virtual reality stuff mm-hmm. right completely opaque complete with opening parties with uh, scantily clad female cartoon characters <laughs> like you know like auditors <laughs> yeah More auditors uh, type of thing but they on top of that, Now, of course, this being the modern world, they deleted this stuff. But also being the modern world, people, you know, use the Wayback Machine and caught them deleting stuff. But, but that's part of the modern mindset, right? You just, well, when you lie and you get caught, well, you just delete it. <laughs> you know, type of thing like it never happened. Anyway, they put out a promo saying that they were, uh, you know, happy to, To be standing with and promoting this client but you're not as an auditor supposed to do that right that's completely wrong as a mindset and so it, that type of thing put many of these folks <coughs> in deep deep trouble and mostly he gave people if he Sam Bankman Freed gave people money to promote. Uh-huh. Millions of dollars, you know, including these folks who are famous shark tanker types uh, as well. So they trade on that fame. Uh, Sam Bankman Freed uh, gives them, uh, you know, money because, again, if you're looting a place as the CEO, the banks, you know, your entity is going to fail. So the money isn't coming from you. The money's coming from the victims. You get credit for the political contributions, for example, but it's all funded by other people's money, not yours. So the fact that it imploded um, obviously affected the people who invested in it and lost their money, I'm assuming. Does it matter to me, though? Does it matter to the rest of us? Well, it certainly matters first in the sense that it's our sons and daughters <laughs> uh, if uh, you know if, if you're my age uh, type of thing um, and soon it'll be our grandkids um, right now n- no it doesn't blow up the economy the general economy so you've seen that when the big banks real banks fail so the best estimate of For example, just of lost GDP in the United States, what we call the present value of that is 41.7 
trillion dollars mm-hmm. in American parlance. That's a thousand billion. You know, forty-one point seven of those thousand billions. Uh, just staggering amounts of losses, and that's just the GDP. You're also talking about 11 million uh, Americans losing their jobs, another 10 million losing their homes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If crypto gets big enough, yes, it will cause much larger losses. Mostly these losses were within the crypto community, but it's spreading, you know, the way you, if you're a, a young vice president at a bank, right? You're one of, at a big bank, you're one of thousands. They look just, you know, y'all look alike and you want to get ahead. Well, what do you do these days? You pitch the senior management on, well, let's, let's get into crypto, right? So if things continue the growth over the next 10 to 15 years, then it will be uh, a real threat to economic stability as well. But you're right. At this point, mostly it's losses within uh, the community. And, and let me just give you an example of what finally killed them, because it wasn't the government coming in. It, it wasn't the Bloomberg reporters exposing the Ponzi scheme. These, I have to get a little bit in the weeds, all right? What you do is issue a tiny number of tokens crypto and these tokens are uh, a cryptocurrency it's a electronic version of a currency for, for now let just let's keep it at that general level for now you issue a limited number of these tokens and people give you real something of actual value you know dollars <laughs> uh, for the tokens which you can do to buy all the you know the fancy buildings and such that Sam Bankman-Fried did and and by the politicians and all those types of folks. But the key is you can't actually issue many of these tokens because if you do, the price of the token will crash. So what the key disaster, again, Sam Bankman-Fried in his arrogance and idiocy, he issued more tokens when he got in liquidity problems and he issued them to his worst business rival a guy that's notorious for running funds that get in trouble with the u.s government all the time in terms of funding terrorism etc 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 now what is worst business rival gonna do knowing you're in a liquidity problem with the tokens He's going to demand you pay him real something of real value, like dollars for those tokens. And you're going to collapse. You're going to collapse within three days of that happening. And that's, so that's, it's a bit like pneumonia, right? Something else puts you in the hospital, but pneumonia kills you quickest. Mm -hmm. Liquidity problems kill you quickest. The, the fundamental problem that, put them on death's door was the fraud scheme. But it was that liquidity crisis of giving their rival the ability to kill them at any time and then thinking they wouldn't, the, your rival wouldn't do that. 
why? You know, <laughs> what conceivable world would they not do you in? Yeah, and the rival was the chief executive of Binance, is that correct? That's correct. Which is another crypto um, Which, company. Yes, and in many ways a worse crypto company. And they're in legal trouble too, aren't they, currently? Oh, perennial legal problems. They violate all kinds of things according to the United States, including stuff against terrorist financing, against sanctions, against human rights violators, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. My guest is William Black. He's the author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the S&L, the Savings and Loan Industry, which we will talk about too. Some of you, I'm sure, remember it like I do. Uh, being at the same age uh, range, I think, Bill, as um, as you. So um, staying, though, still with Sam Bankman-Fried and um, FTX, as the New York Times uh, says, he was... Um, let's see, known for his commitment to effective altruism. What is effective altruism and uh, who, who benefited from his altruism? Well, in Sam Bankman-Fried's case, again, it, it's all part of the key thing we talk about of this kind of control fraud. Remember I said about camouflage, mm-hmm. a shield and a weapon. So in the United States in particular, though not unique to the United States, The way to respectability is charitable contributions. And this has been historically true. The robber barons and such became socially respectable through their contributions. And in some cases, those contributions have done some really wonderful things. Um, not so much in Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, case, right? Um, there, there's really nothing much to show of it. He's humiliated the, uh, the entities he gave money to. They've tended to give the money back to the bankruptcy estate. So uh, it's basically in his hands a con, right? And the con is to look like I'm not some sleazy business person. Uh, I'm someone there for the people. And yes, I want to do well for myself, but it's mostly, you know, a little equivalent to tikkun olam, right? Uh, that we will bind up uh, the ills with uh, our gains. Uh, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm only for myself, what am I uh, type of thing? So that's the motive. But the reality in Sam Bankman-Fried's case is... It was a way to work the con, get res- seeming respectability, and to uh, salve his uh, conscience. Mm-hmm. Did he uh, coin the, the um, notion of effective altruism, or is that something that um, started before him? He did not. And indeed, his father uh, and mother are actually known in this regard. So it is something... That some of the roots of it uh, you know including uh, binding up the ills of the world uh, he would have gotten at the lunch t- and dinner table 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I should have mentioned, of course, that um, you folks are welcome to join the conversation. If you have a relevant question or comment, and you can do that at 608-256-2001. You can do it also on social media, at War Talk on X, I suppose, or um, a public affair on um, Facebook. So um, in late July, Bill, campaign finance charges against him were dropped. What were they um, and why were they dropped? Uh, so there are, they made this consortium that I said, far broader than Sam Bankman Freed, but all the money coming from the victims, ultimately, of the fraud schemes went to hundreds of politicians. And the art is to make the money dark money, right? Uh, So that other folks don't know that it came from Sam Bankman Freed. But he gets, and his other entities get the uh, credit uh, with the politician uh, for giving that money. So allegedly, the U.S. uh, government says they violated a host of campaign finance laws in this process of trying to keep this money dark. Now, the prob- the legal problem, and um, I'm also a lawyer, <laughs> um, is that uh, they extradited him from the Bahamas. The Bahamas has very limited extradition on some of these financial frauds. And the Bahamas said, when you extradited them, uh, him, Sam Bankman Fried and others, you didn't alert us that the, that part of the reason you were extraditing them was for campaign violations. And if you had, we probably wouldn't or definitely wouldn't have extradited them had we known those charges were available. Now think of that. That's kind of weird, right? Yeah, explain that, please. Oh, well, the Bahamas is one of the offshore nations that wants to have many contributions because contributions don't just go to the United States politicians. They go to the Bahamian uh, politicians as well. Uh, And so they don't uh, want to assist the United States in cracking down on political corruption, even in the United States, much less where there's a tie to Bahamian uh, officials, right? Indeed, people were somewhat happy that the Bahamas was willing to extradite him at all. Uh, He had gotten so notorious that it was apparently felt to be a political necessity at the high levels of the Bahamian government. Anyway, uh, when uh, Bahamas notified the Justice Department of that, uh, the Justice Department felt it uh, endangered uh, their entire case, and so they dropped uh, those charges. Huh. Okay. So let's look at um, some of the beneficiaries of um, this dark money. Um, he gave lavishly, from what I read, to think tanks, including the Center for American Progress. Um, first of all, what that is, if you know, and secondly, uh, why? Why give money to the think tanks? Oh, because they're influential. 
So again, in uh, the case of uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, uh, she starts out with a Hoover Institution. Uh, you know, the, a, a think tank, a famous think tank connected with Stanford, uh, highly associated with the far right. The one you just mentioned is um, sort of the Democratic pro Wall Street, a branch of the Democratic uh, apparatus. So the, uh, they uh, frequently support Republican initiatives as well. And uh, primarily, what do they want? They want relatively weak regulation of finance and of crypto. So the think tanks are extremely useful if you're trying to fend off regulation. Uh, the, Sam Bankman-Fried was operating in what economists call the shadow financial because it is virtually unregulated. And by the way, that's what they did in the great financial crisis in many cases. So when you say so, the great financial crisis, you're talking about what? 2008. Yeah. So, so, so um, expand on that a bit, if you will, please. What happened sure. in 2008 in, in that sense? So in, if I could actually back up. When to, I lost a bunch of money for my retirement account. Yes. Many yeah. people in pensions uh, and, and particularly uh, public sector pensions uh, suffered extremely uh, badly in this. Okay, um, this actually takes us to the savings and loan debacle and, and actually the third act of the savings and loan debacle, which becomes the great financial crisis and the great recession of 2008. So um, there had been a second act in which the primary fraud mechanism was very large commercial real estate loans. So these are 60 to $120 million in that era uh, projects to put in a fancy office building in a downtown Dallas, for example, right? And we had gotten very good at dealing with those frauds. Orange County, California is actually, according to testimony of federal officials and by my own experience, the financial fraud capital of the world. Which so the, California? Orange County, California. Orange County. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the Republican County. Yeah. Then it's actually now very mixed, but you're re quite right. In that era, it was uh, the actually the home of the John Birch Society. Uh, it was that far uh, right as well. Okay. So these guys are very good at innovating frauds. And they said, uh, the regulators are on to that one. Let's start a new one. We'll make loans to people for homes. And we'll make loans not just to people we've been loaning to, but we'll make loans to uh, poorer black and brown folks uh, as well. All right. And now we're in a retail as opposed to wholesale, right? Because a home is in that era, 200,000 uh, versus a $120 million commercial real estate project. So we'll get an army of loan brokers who will be like locusts and they will go out because we don't have branches, you know, in the poor neighborhoods and they will go out and uh, there'll be storefront offices in black communities and brown communities and white communities, right? Uh, and such. And our examiners 
uh, I was in the regional office in charge of dealing with this, which was based in San Francisco. Our examiners found this really early, right when it starts in 1990. And they said, look, I, we know you're busy dealing with this commercial real estate stuff that's become epidemic, but you have to stop this one before it becomes epidemic or we'll just be swept away. And we said, okay, you're right. And by 1994, we had driven every one of the entities out of business or, you know, put the jailed their uh, CEOs. Anyway, there's only one left. And that one said, you're, they're obviously going to get us. So they voluntarily gave up federal deposit insurance. We only have jurisdiction as federal financial regulators if you have federal deposit insurance. So for the sole purpose of escaping our regulation, they did that, converted to a mortgage bank in California, which is essentially unregulated, which is to say the shadow financial sector. And they changed their names to AmeriQuest. And now to use the metaphor of uh, science, they became the vector, like the Anopheles mosquito, spreading malaria. They spread this fraud scheme throughout the shadow financial sector. They grew to become the largest maker of li fraudulent liars loans and they devastated the, in predatory lending, black and brown communities in particular. Hispanics with college degrees lost 70% of their net worth in the period of the great financial crisis. And for blacks, it was close to 60%. So these are staggering losses, what they're aiming for in all cases, just like Sam Bankman Freed, is we don't want any pesky regulators because the regulators made in our era, the criminal referrals and thousands of elite white collar criminals were going to prison. So explain a bit more because I'm not sure I understand it yet. How did um, lending money to people to buy homes how did that end up being this massive, massive um, implosion that affected each and every one of us? I mean, I'm I'm white and and fairly educated. I lost about fifty percent of my, uh, like I said, my retirement account at the time. Sure. So Which, let me explain the yeah. economic uh, of this, right? Please. So. You want to make loans that are going to default years later, not immediately. The loan brokers only get paid if the bank or savings and loan funds the loan. So the art is for the loan broker to make the loan appear to be safe. Now they're not conning the bank. The bankers are the ones actually running this. And by the way, if people think this is weird, there's a whole literature on this in our field criminology, but also 
two Nobel laureates in economics, George Akerlof and Paul Romer, 1993, you can see it, find it online for free, looting the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit. Okay, so back to the loan broker. Loan broker only gets paid if the loan gets made. So the incentive of the loan broker is to make the loan look safe. Two key ways you do that. One, you extort the appraisers to inflate the appraised value. And there's huge literature on this. Um, this is not contested, all right? That there was this epidemic of appraisal fraud led by the loan brokers. Second, the bank, bankers, I remember, are on in on this, the CEO of the bank that's actually funding the loans. He says, it's almost always a he, hey, you know, you don't have to verify your income anymore. Now, the borrowers don't know the magic ratios that you have to hit to get the loan approved. But the loan broker is told every day in writing by what were called term sheets, what the magic ratios were that he or she had to hit. So they inflated the borrower's income and the bank has now agreed it won't check the borrower's income. So they don't check that? They... They, in a liar's loan, they did not verify. That's what the definition of a liar's loan. People assume that the lies came from the borrowers. The lies are not coming from the borrower. The borrower doesn't know what number to put in. Uh -huh. The loan broker knows, and the loan broker knows because the bank told them every day in the term sheet the magic numbers to hit. And that's what they did. Okay, now we have by... Um, 2007-ish, 40% roughly of all the home loans in America were liar's loans. 40%, that's over a million a year. What's that going to do? Well, millions of people who can't afford to repay the loan are going to take out loans that's going to hyperinflate a bubble in real estate values. And anybody who buys near the peak is going to lose, but the folks who are going to lose unbelievably are the ones who also were the victim of the fraudulently inflated appraisal. Right? But there's another thing that goes on when you hyperinflate bubbles, and that is, hey, and there's a saying in the trade, and the top bank, uh, reg, bank regulator at the Federal Reserve once had this on a plaque, but that's been, you know, he's been gone for 35 years. A rolling loan gathers no loss. As long as prices are accelerating, you simply refinance the bad loan by making a bigger loan. They repay the prior loan, money good, and you keep booking the income. And so this doesn't just create bubbles, it creates staggering bubbles, such that by 2006, finance, 
just one industry, finance, had more than 40% of the total corporate profits in America. Wow. Now, finance is supposed to be a middleman, and the efficiency condition for a middleman is lean and mean. Tiny, right? Hyper-efficient. Instead, finance became extraordinarily massive, so massive that when it blew up, the banks lost, but not the bankers, because they had the a succession of administrations, the Bush and the Obama administrations, and the Carter, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the, the uh, Clinton administration, had gutted our capacity to deal with these problems. So Clinton cut more than three quarters of the staff of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, more than half of the staff of the Office of Thrift Supervision. The Bush administration eliminated the criminal referral system, which is essential. Obviously, the bank isn't going to make a criminal referral against the CEO that's running the fraud scheme. Just our little agency had in savings and loan regulator made over 30,000 criminal referrals in the savings and loan debacle, which is pipsqueak compared to the great financial crisis. The criminal referral system was eliminated. The FBI, the senior FBI person in charge, we have interviewed him. He says he thinks his best memory is that from all the federal regulatory agencies total in the great financial crisis there were six criminal referrals you know and i um have shall we say very negative feelings about clinton partially because of how he made Uh, receiving welfare, you know, for poor people so much harder. And so many people fell off the rolls because of his policies. And now I'm learning that he, you know, while doing that, he also made it so much harder to, um, to, to do anything to the crooks who are stealing everybody's money. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm a Democrat. Um, and I blew the whistle repeatedly on government officials and it led to congressional ethics investigations and the politicians I blew the whistle on five of the six were Democrats. A majority of the house of representatives co-sponsored a resolution calling on us in the Reagan administration to cease the re-regulation of the industry. And that included the entire leadership, senior leadership of both parties. Yeah. And I worked very closely with the other senior officials that were at that infamous Keating Five meeting that you're old enough to remember when the five U.S. senators tried to prevent us from taking action against the worst fraud, Charles Keating, uh, Lincoln Savings. Yeah, yeah. And when we refused to give in to their power, they removed our jurisdiction in San Francisco over the institution. 
and try to do a sweetheart deal for that. Anyway, I worked very closely with the other three other senior officials uh, that were part of this Keating Five meeting. To this day, I do not know what, if any, political affiliation we have. It, people need to understand that there was, not everybody, but there was an era when it was the absolute norm that these things were not determinative on the decisions that the, you know, the best regulators made. So, uh, Bill, we have a caller for you that I want to get to before we're done. But before that, I, I just want you to make the point very clear, if it's true, what I'm going to say, that uh, the reason for all of these changes in... Uh, Basically, deregulation and allowing for such outrageous acts that affect really the whole country and and to some degree the whole world, I would say, um, has to do with the fact that um, the banks, the the crooks, the Sam uh, Bankman Frieds of the world, basically give a lot of money to politicians. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, and we deliberately targeted that so that when we brought these criminal prosecutions and we brought thousands of uh, civil actions and enforcement actions, I personally spent a couple of thousand hours talking to the journalists and we put it in plain English, what the fraud schemes were. Then I would explain them and explain them and explain them. And once we started getting about the first 400 of these 1,700 convictions, as soon as we filed the suit, the politicians would rush to return the political contribution. So we turned their greatest strength, sort of jujitsu-like, into a liability. But of course, that doesn't happen uh, anymore, and it's for a reason. I left the federal government when uh, the Clinton-Gore Uh, their big domestic thing was quote unquote reinventing government and their major assaults were on uh, the inspector generals and on effective regulators, particularly financial regulators. Right. And they came out and this is essentially verbatim said, our key message is you are to treat the industry as your customer (gasps) and in my quiet way i got up and said surely you mean the people of the united states (laughs) and they said no we considered that but rejected it all right so that there's no simpler and what is that eight words or something um to destroy effective regulation and the rule of law so you're right but it's also economics so it, uh, both major parties adopted this anti-regulatory you know, regulation is the evil, the great evil, and we must liberate uh, large corporations. And with this mindset that surely anybody that wears a very nice suit couldn't be a criminal. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get to our listeners quickly, and um, we must also hear from you what can be done. But um, Steve, if you can be very brief, please. Yes, Esty. 
In July 1990, concurrent to the escalating Iraq-Kuwait war scare, then-President George H.W. Bush had a blood relation, I forget who, embroiled in a savings and loan fraud located in one of them their flyover states. Was that individual whose identity I've forgotten then-future President George W. Bush? I do recall the complete disappearance of that news item from the front pages because the U.S. was now itself going to war. Could you, William, please straighten out this listener? Thank you. Okay, thanks. Sure. I think you're thinking about Neil Bush, the son uh, of the uh, president, and our agency did bring a uh, enforcement action against him. And I can tell you that at the uh, behest of the White House, the general counsel of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation called the head of our agency, tried to get him to uh, get rid of the case uh, so that it could be dropped uh, by the uh, FDIC rather than embarrass the president. Uh, the head of our agency not only refused to do that, he made an ethics referral against the head of the uh, FDIC. And as a result, the head of our agency, who was an up-and-comer Republican, uh, Tim Ryan, first cousin to Meg, by the way, uh, uh, is uh, unemployable and uh, in top uh, Republican uh, political ranks mm -hmm. because he did the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So we have um, almost four minutes for you to tell us what needs to be done, what can be done. Will anything ever be done? Sure. So uh, we know how to succeed because we did succeed. And uh, so you can build on those methods. So uh, an amazing thing happened. The head of the agency, um, not the one I was talking about, Tim Ryan, but uh, prior, Ed Gray, one that began the re-regulation. And he was a traditional Reaganite, had a road to Damascus conversion and became the great re-regulator. Anyway, what did he do? First, he went to all the people that he trusted in Washington, D.C., which is not a fairly small group, <laughs> and said, asked, who are the best financial regulators in America? And then he personally hired them, Joe Selby, Mike Patriarca, and put them in the two epicenters of the savings and loan crisis, Texas and California. Just super briefly about Joe Selby. Joe Selby twice rose through the ranks of the Office of the Currency to become the acting head of the agency. Of course, he would never be put in charge on a permanent basis because you have to be politically tied to do that. He was from Texas. He was gay. He knew exactly what the industry would do to him. And the industry, as he expected, destroyed him with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, demanding that the Ed Gray fire Selby on the grounds that Selby was gay, huh. right? And so people like that, like Mike Patriarca, exist, and leadership is absolutely critical. Second, restore the criminal referral system. It worked staggeringly well. As I said, over 1,700 elite convictions in just the savings and loan industry uh, nearly 2,500 in the banking industry, right? Works spectacularly. So what did they do? They destroyed it. And the Obama administration refused to reestablish it. 
right? There's just, just insane. And, and what they said was, well, the, we'll just have the banks make the referrals. And you're going, <laughs> you think a bank is going to make a criminal referral at CEO? Insane? Third, openness in political contributions. No more dark money. Get a new Supreme Court. You can, I mean, for so many things in life, you're going to need a new Supreme Court that is going to end this idea that corporations are people and that they have a First Amendment right of speech. Corporations are legal fictions. They're not people. They will never be people. So yeah. those are the big three. But the fourth, and this one hardly anyone writes about. This actually occurred under the both. So it was a combination, the statute um, by uh, the president, uh, who was Democrat, Carter, and then the regulations making it even worse by Ronald Reagan. What of they course. did was get rid of all interest rate controls on banking. And that means any bank in America, an insured institution in America, can grow thousands of percent a year, as they did in the savings and loan debacle, because they're federally insured. All they have to do is offer a tenth of 1% higher interest, we call 10 basis points. And this again the is our day, money. They'll secure the our have money. Dollars, they'll be $5 billion bigger. Yeah. Well, William Black is the author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to own one, how corporate executives and politicians looted the savings and loan industry. He was the deputy staff director of the National Commission that investigated the cause of the savings and loan debacle. Bill, we could talk for another three hours, but we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thanks to uh, Jade and Summer and Patty. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye-bye. Where you can